Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut Tussouche, a joint venture with Gracina Kulczyk and Art Stations Foundation Switzerland. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. The notion of the voice is a crucial one in the historical development of women's consciousness and their position and agency in society. How to discern when women are speaking in their own voices goes hand in hand with the question of how to know who we are and doing what we really want to do. The spoken and the unspoken are two dimensions of the inquiry into who benefits from our silence and what are the effects and consequences of our voices. Mostly unspoken practices of gender-based exclusion and discrimination favor the interests of others. This conversation with Anja Novak is part of the Promise No Promises podcast. It took place in a Berlin kitchen in mid-April 2019 and is part of a larger reflexive conversation that Anja and Sonja maintain since years in different formats. From long emails or short messages to artistic projects through dance floors and texts in dialogue. The work of Anja Novak, Choreography, Bodies, Languages and Situations. For years she has been conducting an intermittent research on love as a strategy to generate knowledge that has produced a digital archive called Technology of Love. Her performative practice also explores the potential of ambiguity, paying special attention to the meanings produced in intermediate zones. Since two years the sick body is part of her choreographic research. Here the disease is a state in which the border between the norm and the pathology are in a permanent and constant state of negotiation. The identities of the patients themselves are not only inflamed, but make appear a non-normative body with a different temporality that has to exist in a society marked by the imperatives of happiness and speed. This in-between conversation with Anya started updating the past with a possible foundational moment of her feminist consciousness during her adolescence in Poland. Despite having a script of questions for their meeting, it was produced from a series of continuous deviations where drag tactics appear to allow new identity experiences. Also reflections and critical opinions about different forms and manifestations of love emerge, as well the ambiguity of care, the situation of women in performing arts, or mostly female bodies where illness and disease could also be a social symptom and not only a personal condition. These are all issues that exist in an interconnected way that become visible here thanks to the intimate connection between feeling and thinking. With this whole sort of interest and popularity of feminism in the last years, like within the mainstream, I find it very interesting that you actually specifically want me to locate one point in my biography or in my life in which I would become an ally to this. It's a bit embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I had this moment when I was 13 and I was at school in history class. And it was a Polish history class because that's where I grew up in Poland. The history teacher, who was this middle-aged woman, she was telling us about the situation of uh, education and educational institutions in the territory of Poland, which was at the time divided between three states, Prussia, Austria and Russia. Basically, what happened in the history of Poland is that because the nation fucked up, the neighboring powers overpowered us and divided our territory between themselves. So. Hence, Poland disappeared from the map for uh, over 100 years, which is a long time. And then, of course, what these ruling nations would do is they abolish speaking in Polish. There would obviously be some proposal, let's say, or <laughs> some scheme for education for children or adolescents uh, that, of course, would go against the 
Poland identity, or Poland's identity, or Polish identity. She made a statement, something like, so there was education for everyone in the Russian part of the division. And then she made the side comment, for everyone except for women, of course. My reaction, and I was like 13, was like, I mean, I was in class, so there was also a certain uh, prescription of how you behave in class. And I just sort of shouted out, oh, but that's so unfair. Like this sort of over-eager, compulsive little teenage girl. Uh, of course, now in retrospect, I kind of ask myself, why did it strike me so much? Why didn't it strike so much the other kids that were in class? I would need to go a bit like deeper into my biography or like a life as a, as a young girl, I guess, in order to understand it. But maybe it's not so important. I guess what happened to me that maybe didn't happen to you in the same way every time when you bring up this thing of uh, having discovered or become an ally of feminism quite late or what you maybe perceive as late, which I don't perceive as late. Unfortunately, I must have had events in my life. I must have made observations in my family life of, let's say, the relationship between my parents, the relationship of my friends' parents, etc., that made me feel like something was not okay, so to speak. <laughs> and that made me sense, I couldn't name it, I couldn't put a name on it at that time, when I was maybe 12 or 13. I must have seen abuse, or I must have seen forms of psychological and not just psychological violence at home and in my surroundings. School itself is quite a, a violent environment, I would say, and the division between boys and girls and nothing else is quite striking as well. So I think I must have had life experiences as a child which made me notice that there's something not okay with how society approaches and gives allowance to men and doesn't do the same with women. And also with me, what was striking from the beginning, since I actually for the first time read theoretically about feminism when I was 15, and I remember until today, like the specific book on the history of feminism, probably the only book translated to Polish about feminism that existed back then, that there's also something about this very strict this insistence on this binary division between women and men that I found problematic even as a child. And that is kind of haunting me until today. So I think a lot of what I do and what I think and how I approach things comes precisely from this intuitive lack of acceptance of this insistence on the binaries, that there's either or always. It's very sedimented in the history of culture and philosophy, like we know this. It's also extremely complex, not that I have a solution to it, but I felt since I was a child that there is a group, now I know that it's many groups, social groups that need more support and attention to become what they potentially could be because they're not yet what they are. And when I was a child, I felt that was women. Now, because I live in Berlin and because I've done all sorts of different educations, I've met many people like you, other like very openly thinking people. It struck me that, of course, there's lots of underprivileged groups that need this special attention. I would also say special care, but care is another spread term nowadays. I think maybe it's interesting or important to underline that I grew up in Poland, which had quite a turbulent history. And from my point of view and my friend's point of view is again in a difficult moment of somehow being this young democracy liberated from communism in late 80s, early 90s. And again, from my point of view, taking for granted that those gained liberties or freedom or democracy by becoming or turning slowly into some form of maybe it's a big word to say, like some sort of fascist regime. And I'm saying it uh, from a point of view of someone who actually has lately worked a lot in Poland and had a chance to superficially touch on those channels of affect and thought that happened there, while at the same time comfortably sitting with you at a kitchen in Berlin and talking about non-binaries. I see really such an interesting and clear logic in why you would ditch feminism and sort of be an anti-feminist and want to be a guy. Because it is like a form of drag. You as a child or as a teenager or in your at university, which also is like a, such a strong identity affirming moment of what we are, how we want to be you know, seen by others. A lot of women do it. A lot of straight women do this also. And even today, like, you know, a couple of months ago, I was talking to my friend 
who's an artist and she was telling me how she loves this pop star musician. And then while we were talking and drinking Prosecco, like we would arrive at this conclusion of hers that it's not like she actually really loves him and desires him. It's basically that she desires what he is because she wants to be him, which is this thing of I want to be a man. I sort of also have it to a certain extent. Of course, it has this shady, dark part of, for example, women hating women or women not being solidarious with women. I understand it, but I think it's such an interesting psychological drag in which you somehow decide that I cannot be a man, but I'm going to be a man because I see power in it. It's very hard to uh, seek power or practice power from like a female or feminist point of view. Like there's, this is a whole problematic, which we also talked about two years ago when we were in Barcelona and we were doing this project that you invited me to. And I remember the project was with two female performers and a non-binary performer. I don't know, it struck me at the time how crucial it is for me to understand what is this female leadership. Not just when you work with other women, like when you work with anyone really. Because since then I've also worked with different kinds of people. And now I'm thinking my tools can be can seem so limited because I really try to do it through a certain kind of empowered softness and empowered imperfection, <laughs> so to speak. My friend Frederick Gies and I, we have this joke in which we practice femdom top dramaturgies or femdom top methodologies of work <laughs> for working with groups of performers. It's a joke, but it's only to a certain extent a joke, you know, because it's like, how do you employ those modes in which you create a space or you hold a space for people? Or as Zygmar says in her podcast, you have their back. The situation is created in which they want to collaborate with you on their terms and they don't feel pressured or forced, which of course is also a form of fiction. Because when you are leading a project, I was this close to saying mothering a project, but then I don't want to fall into all those maternal metaphors. <laughs> also because of the kind of work I make, in which I sometimes rock people to sleep as if they were babies. Just linking it to what you were saying before, it's hard to believe, but like still in the 21st century, it's very tricky for women to do this whole operation of disidentifying because that's the kind of queer feminism I'm most interested in. Sure, maybe I'm saying this because I'm white and I live in Western Europe and I don't need to over-identify as a non-white, say non-fully abled, etc., etc. Like this can go on forever, right? This is not to diminish it, but of course I might have this privileged position, but like I insist that I am more interested in this identifying, but of course like there's this whole labor that you need to do and that you cannot do always. Because for example, how can I disidentify from being a woman when in Poland, I need to go to the street to protest against abortion ban? Because it's like the only country in the European Union in which you still cannot get an abortion in the 21st century, which is really intense and hardcore. So of course, this is not a time for disidentifying. We all have those different strategies of getting through womanhood, the womanhood that we feel and that is also assigned to us because like I may disidentify in my mind, but of course when I go to the street or when I go to buy bread, like I am perceived as a woman. I might be a butch woman or I might be a femme woman on another day. There's lots of different ways of performing this, but still it's so tricky to be that yet not be that. It's funny how aware and unaware I am of what I do and make. Because I had my experiences of also flirting with drag in performance. I'm not a drag queen or drag king. I need to emphasize this. The people who are <laughs> actual real drag queens, they um, usually adopt a persona, a character, which has a name, which sort of has a life of its own, that it's sort of like an alter ego of the person who performs the... I don't do that. I have a tendency to use drag more as a choreographic strategy. I also really have a tendency to work with sort of what I call a sad drag. Because there's such a strong emphasis, both in the traditional and in the queer drag, to actually work with entertainment. So, you know, these drag numbers are usually short numbers, which have a speaking, joking part and a song. And it's very much about what it looks like. It's very much about excess, about exaggeration, about 
just enhancing be it the the performance of womanhood or manhood or femininity or masculinity again it would be difficult for me to actually be a drag king for example maybe that would be more my direction because there is this urgent internal strong necessity to not identify too much with any strand of anything which i sometimes wonder if it's an escape strategy or if it's an actual political decision <laughs> I've been through different, let's say, shape-shifting in the last years, which was linked to not just what I'm going through in my head, but also to the kind of people I surround myself with and the way my desire travels and the way my relationship to masculinity transforms. I have yet to embrace a full-on, very exuberant femme side of my performance or nature. Let's use this word. <laughs> I'm slowly getting there. I love when you flirt a little bit with those notions, either in performance or as a performing artist in her spare time. I love how differently those nuances of femme, butch and everything like this spreads in between them. I love how differently it is perceived by people of different gender identities and, and sexual practices. I don't want to like generalize, but how in the same day from a different person, be it from a gay man or from a female friend or from a trans lover, I may get a comment about how butch or femme I happen to be. And I'm the same, but there's something energetic and something about the angle and the optics that these people have and what they want to see in me. This is a fascinating thing about generally making performative formats or making performative art because you assume that you have created this shape of things and this content for this and this purpose. But then because of some subtle, underrated, underestimated aspects of you and what you are physically, you are read differently. I wouldn't say that I put an awful lot of effort to practicing these different gender performances as a, in my daily life. If I make a performance for an audience, there's always an interest and care about that in me. Even if it's not a full-on queer drag performance, because this is maybe more what I do, so, you know, I'll be, let's say, wearing a beard and moustache, but my very, in certain way, feminine body is exposed, I'm wearing makeup, like, it's more of a genderfuck situation always than a full-on linear drag king or drag queen situation. Even when I don't prescribe this drag frame, I still need to somehow to work with those subtleties and those nuances. It's like with this, I can't believe we're still protesting this shit. Again, uh, not within a public uh, space of manifesting ourselves against something, but within a, let's say, niche. It's still a very niche field that I work in, however big the audiences are who come to see those performances. I do consider it still a form of like subtle activism within arts to somehow stretch those boundaries of how women and men are perceived. Especially now that I think about, about the last work I made in Warsaw last year, in which we worked towards or with certain notions or fantasies about the future, the subject that is also hyper-present nowadays, because there were more female-bodied performers in this piece than male-bodied performers, I decided to... Well, I always work with subtlety, or I always try to work with certain forms of tenderness, but I was surprised how easily certain clear elements from female... from femininity, let's say, were adopted for the sake of this performance to make statements about the future. And these statements are not the future is a woman, because I disagree with this. <laughs> if anything, the future is non-binary or <laughs> something like that. I'm not super hyper-conscious of it, but for some reason it always ends up being like this. So I guess it means that I am, that I put a lot of effort in making statements about the bridging somehow the binaries. Again, when I say bridging the binaries, I mean not pretending like they're not there or not pretending that they're best friends. It's more this thing of how would we assume as difference or differences can communicate in a way which might create a third entity or third force but it also doesn't have to. We don't know, right? We don't know what thinking and feeling outside of binaries is. I am in a comfortable position of, still, <laughs> let's see how long this lasts, of being an artist, because I'm not an academic. I can propose it without consequences that have to do with proving truth, 
I have to be accountable to a certain extent, but it's within the realm of artistic fantasy. And fantasy is not a, a whatever. Like, I still think it's strong. Again, like not to fall into this binary of fantasy truth or fiction truth. I liked it when you wrote me once in a personal message that friendship between women in Spain is like being in a romantic relationship. It's on the verge of being very politically incorrect. <laughs> I don't think it's just in Spain. Of course, this subject has this whole danger into falling immensely into those binary oppositions because, of course, I also noticed that there are slightly different tendencies in my friendships with, say, gay men than with women. This is not to say that all gay men behave the same and all women behave the same. That would be really bad. It's again socialization and it's again entitlement subject. So if you grow up with a deep conviction and sense of your personal freedom, like men do, cis men do, and your right to be what you want in life, and being in life means being in relationship to things and people. Of course, later you have different tools to behave and be with those people. I really think that there's no nature and just culture in how fucked up relationships or friendships might become. And I'm saying this especially because I spent the last five years of my life not being in romantic relationships, but being in romantic friendships. The other day, because now that I started dating a person, it struck me how helpful it has been to actually have this advanced research into friendship, which of course is a form of love. We can go for hours about this. It struck me how, and again, it's not women's fault. We just grow up, not all of us again, but I did, being made to think that I am maybe potentially even more vulnerable than I am. So of course, throughout my life, I had to develop strategies to be strong. But of course, from the start, they're a little bit artificial and exaggerated because they're in response and in opposition to this vulnerability. And then it's so tricky because on one hand, you're made to perform that you're this strong, independent woman. And by the way, this identity of a strong, independent woman is not just for women. I have male or trans friends who also say they suffer from it because if you take it too far, you also feel extremely lonely or you find it difficult to relate. This thing that you said that women oftentimes do of like expecting communication without actually enunciating their needs or passive aggression. It's such an interesting concept, this passive aggression. It's also so gross. It's also like I in my life had to take a decision at some point to not engage in this and to not engage in a sense of guilt. Because again, I consider it to be a very female Catholic thing. Underlining female and Catholic because I come from this kind of upbringing, you know. I'm thinking like, how do you do it in your life and in your work to engage with people without feeling ever guilty? Well, I guess it means that you have to always be accountable <laughs> and always treat people uh, well. And if you don't, be able to account for it, potentially apologize and potentially improve, right? That's this naturalized guilt also, I feel. Us people who are not cis men, we are so used to disbelieving in our uh, stand, in our position, in our whatever opinion, that we internalize this thing of potentially always having a bad influence, bad effect, bad result. I'm practicing not apologizing for things I didn't do. It's as basic as that. But it's extremely internalized. And you see it all the time, both in friendship and both in professional situations. But I also wanted to say something. I don't feel like I have a statement or anything, but well, if you want something from me in friendship or in love, like why don't you ask me explicitly for it? And that's the question of vulnerability, right? Because in order to, uh, for me to ask you to hug me, because I, for example, am going through a difficult moment, I need to be able to step off my suffering or step off my insecurity and approach you to ask you for a favor. In a way, it's a favor. It's a very intimate favor. It's a bit like when you want to have sex with your partner more than they feel like having sex in the moment. This is also a very intense moment of vulnerability. Even if you have been having sex with this person for a long time sometimes. Yeah, and rejection is a whole big subject. Because when you expose yourself with a desire for something, what I'm trying to say is when you ask for something, 
you put yourself in an extremely vulnerable position and you either get it and then it's great or you don't get it and then you need to uh, do something with this feeling of rejection and that's work and it's also pain and pain is super interesting it's also hard i'm a taurus so i mostly engage in pleasure i try to avoid pain but maybe that's why i'm also so interested in pain or lately mostly because it means that oh shit all of a sudden i have to display some sort of a plethora of tools in order to deal with this situation in the now and the situation is that i feel rejected i feel like shit about myself but i might also feel angry yesterday i had this conversation with a friend who's on the verge of a breakup with her partner and she said you know i have this completely sickening mechanism in which i make him suffer because i want him to suffer as much as I suffer because of something that he did to me, not on purpose. It's such a vicious circle. We know it's extremely childish, it's not good psychologically, blah, blah. But like those psychological patterns in romantic relationships or friendship is really powerful, I think. And I feel that we do reproduce a lot of the things that we know from couplehood in friendships. I re-listened to what Zygmar said, and I love, to be honest, this intersectional approach, which she sort of proposed, right? I must say, oh, I have such a complicated relationship to this profession. <laughs> it's hard for me to just approach it sort of like with this rational distance. It's maybe difficult to reflect on it because I'm in a period of doubting the relevance of this kind of production. But let me see how I could approach this so it's... Not about me disbelieving in the power of art. We are also in a very sort of special place to discuss this because we are in Berlin and we are in our early mid 30s. We are a bit in a bubble of other people who are like us. In this community, we have also a very specific understanding of what an artist is and how an artist functions. We also are in specific communities in which certain aspects of being an artist might be discussed and others are not. So I remember we used to talk a lot in Barcelona some time ago about how the issue of class is somehow erased from conversation there and it's taken for granted and how there's no mention of the fact that simply some people have it easier than others. By this I mean middle class, upper middle class people have it much easier to succeed in arts, be it as curators or artists, uh, simply because of all the life conditions they've had that brought them up to the place they are now. And then I remember we would sometimes also uh, whine and complain about being working class and how tough we have it and what are we even doing here. <laughs> and then I would always ask myself when we had those conversations, how do we deal with this? You know, like what's the purpose of this complaint? And complaining is again something that Zygmar mentioned that I really loved. This sort of critique of complaining. For me also, what's the thin line between critiquing or criticizing and complaining? Because I also am oftentimes in environments, especially working in Eastern Europe, of, um, ah, let's just stop complaining, like, everything's fine. People in arts, cultural production in Warsaw, I feel like uh, they overexploit a lot. We also overexploit everywhere. But I feel like there's less reflection about it, and I have a problem with that. I have an issue with that. But then I also wonder, like, what do we do with the figure of the complaining Western European artist? I brought this class thing, on one hand, emphasize that we're not equal. On the other hand, what to do about it? What does it mean? Where should all these people from the upper middle class go? You know, should they stop working <laughs> in the arts? <laughs> what could be this class awareness like to embrace um, other biographies or other lineages? Because, for example, I do notice that for some reason, <laughs> this is funny, I tend to invite to my projects people who are not necessarily wealthy of wealthy families. And I'm only realizing it now when we're talking. I had never thought about it before. Is it because psychological awareness and tools that I have for being in the art context means that I also have a tendency to underestimate myself? Because woman, because from Eastern Europe, because precarious in Berlin. Of course, I'm a lot less precarious than many other people. And of course, I'm a lot more precarious than many other people. The identitarian understanding of artist, which involves certain level of romanticizing, I am completely not interested in. 
I remember it every time when a stranger speaks to me, like say a taxi driver spoke to me some months ago and he asked me what I was doing in life and I said what I was doing and he said, oh, uh, you're so lucky. I would love to make money off something that I like or love. And of course, I was like, don't get me started. But at the same time, I felt very inappropriate to complain about it. And complain, again, is this thing that I find fascinating. I'm super happy that Zygmar brought it up because I have such a difficult relationship to the practice because I agree with her. Complaining itself is within the status quo. It's not a creative energy or a transformative energy. At the same time, where is this whole energetic psychological negativity is supposed to go because like some people have it tough and some people have it tougher <laughs> i can only pose this as a question because i don't know and i'm learning how do you still perform as an artist how do you follow the rules because there's also a certain system of how this functions right and systems are not necessarily bad systems are also made for us to follow them and how do you at the same time actively address these things like no we're not all equal not everybody has the same access to institutions no not everybody's equally heard how do we if we work for institutions or we make institutions deal with this thing that i call like a seasonal interest in this uh, season the institution has a political financial whatever structural interest in supporting all things feminist This is very much, for example, how theater works in Poland. You make a piece about feminism, which this country, Poland, really needs because there was no second wave feminism, there was no sexual liberation. So you make a piece about feminism in 2019 and everybody gets overexcited. There's no question whatsoever about feminist modes of creation, feminist methodologies, feminist approach to anything. It's a sort of like a narrative fun thing in which you uh, scream shout out feminist slogans and then this is how attention is brought to these things. I have an issue with that. I don't know what to say about this because I'm very conflicted. I think uh, choreography or performing arts, this is a very wide term, functions a bit like cooking or being a chef. That most of the people involved are women. Dance has always been like a very female field. But then one thing is the practice and one thing is the training and one thing is the life of that. And another thing is who's successful. So like you suggested that uh, the most visible and uh, successful people, both in dance, choreography, performing arts as makers, but also in the realm of theory, for example, because there's also a whole realm of theory surrounding this, are usually cis males. I don't necessarily like follow rankings of who's the most successful, who's the least successful, etc. But of course, like you see the repertoires of institutions, of theaters, and you do see, like I said, like who gets visibility. It's a, a durational process, I think, to start changing what we perceive and sense as important and worthy of watching or participating in. So if we keep thinking that a certain stereotypical masculinity in all its shapes and forms is still the most interesting, exciting, vibrant, sexy thing there is in humanity, and everything that is not that is feminist art or queer art or <laughs> racial art or whatever, if we slowly can shift those paradigms a bit, then maybe this will mean that among the most successful and visible people, there will not just be, you could say, straight white men or just uh, cis males, cis white males, actually. When I was studying choreography in Berlin some years ago, I was struck by, um, wow, how is this even possible that most of us are females in the course? But yeah, like the most successful people. Again, like we're talking about success, which is something a bit abstract to me. So I don't quite know how to approach this. At the same time, intuitively, I do have a problem with that. Institutions uh, still supporting certain uh, male choreographers who sure, like, played a great role in transforming and pushing choreography further, say, in the 90s. And still today they get so much support. There's this whole subject now, like, how should an artist age? <laughs> and when should the artist maybe step back? I'm not even going to put myself in a position of those male choreographers. There's also a very important, influential female figures. 
in the field of choreography, for example, Deborah Hay, and we all work very differently and all these artists are like separate in their own right. I don't know what to do with the fact that this field being so somehow uh, femme, so queer and so not straight in a way, still precisely like loves to elevate those cis straight figures, male figures. So I don't know what to do with this apart from that we constantly and continuously like work towards changing the optics of what is relevant to watch. It's like in philosophy what you mentioned. Well, again, falling into binaries. There's a certain assumption about what is important and what is anthropocentric and what is humanity, right? So if for centuries this was defined by cis males, then of course it's a shock to anyone <laughs> that maybe it's time to change that because those minorities who were marginalized before are starting to speak, right? To the extent that they're allowed. It's not a revolutionary process, it's an evolutionary process. I hope it's going to speed up also. In my community, the communities that I sort of meet, this reflection on how to queer femininity, queer masculinity, how to deal with this. It's hard for me to speak about it because it really is two separate subjects. Success, which I'm not so interested in talking about. And what are we actually doing when we work? What is the practice? Why is this important? Could this be a form of activism? By activism, I don't mean that we take a performance to the street. I mean that within our artistic community or artistic field, which oftentimes is visited by people who are not from arts, how do we do this to somehow not secure that there's as many males as females doing such or as many female performers or makers as male receiving such stipend or receiving such grant. I know that the city of Berlin, for example, keeps statistics whenever there's a call for public funding and there are a couple of calls a year in choreography or performing arts, like they keep statistics about how many men and, and not men, possibly also the people who are neither nor are recipients of this funding. I don't have knowledge about how this is actually dealt with and how this is approached. I don't have knowledge to what extent it is important for those funding bodies or those juries to actually privilege one group over another. What I do know is that whenever there's a funding result situation and more men than women get it, my friends and I were all like, oh my God, how is this even possible? It's Berlin. What is this? But again, like, I think it's a bubble and Berlin is still, in this terms, quite an advanced place. I mean, there's, of course, a lot of problems intersections that are not taking into account in comparison to other places this is just that they take it into account that this is observed you know those statistics for example that we reflect on it that there's public meetings about it this already says something there are lots of contexts also in western europe in which this is not at all discussed in which we clap whenever we see a successful man I wonder about it a lot, but now that I'm sitting here with you, I also wonder what those straight cis males could do to somehow uh, share the privilege or what kind of sensitivity and thinking they could be engaging in in order to change a little bit those parameters of career and success. Because Berlin institutions, and I mean institutions, not little communities of underground makers, institutions like Hebel am Ufer, the free scene theatre, or visual arts institutions, they do embrace the queer discourse. It's well seen to do this. Yet, still, what is the most somehow present and visible way of being an artist, being a successful artist, is being the singular, special, genius individual. And it also happens in choreography. On one hand, on the level of education, in my education in Berlin, it was very important that we develop strategies for collaboration, sharing, you know, all those formats that sound quite hippie. But I come from that and I still like it and I still appreciate it because I think it expanded something in my thinking about what it means to be an artist and have an artistic practice. Yet, when you see later who is supported, who is visible, there's a discrepancy in how used to we are to this a neutralized and naturalized archetype of an artist as this human who just like, probably is a male, <laughs> appears and puts the proposal forth. How do I work and how do I produce if I have all this knowledge about more attention being given to other forms of creation that are not my whatever feminist queer ideas? 
What do you do? Do you then go underground? Do you go separatist? Do you constantly try to bang against the big male figure of the established artist? You know, do you hate on them? Do you complain all the time? Clearly this doesn't help. It's fascinating for me to actually have the privilege to make artistic work now and probably in a place like Berlin because throughout the like a production process of towards a work you constantly go thinking like what is my power and what I want my power to be. For example, if I produce a work in Warsaw, it's also different than if I produce a work in Berlin because well, I don't want to like fall into lots of simplifications, but already based on my experience from the last two years, certain things, certain queerness, certain sensitivity towards precisely speaking a little bit against the white straight male resonate even more in a place like Warsaw. Uh, so hence, you could conclude, ah, yeah, but they need it. But at the same time, you think, ah, yeah, but they will never give me the same space or place or position, especially within the theater hierarchy, as they would give to a male director. How do you approach this? You think, oh, I want success, so I just need to push and push and push against. What if you're not that kind of person? What if you're not in it for the power? What if I care more about transmitting precisely this difficult to push nuanced material or nuanced way of thinking? And this, of course, will not necessarily put me in the mainstream of be it visual arts or theater in a place like Poland or Germany. What can I fight for if I know that I have a limited access to visibility? What my priority is? Because um, if it's like cooking and most good cooks are women, then why are the big chefs always men? Love is like a difficult, uh, impossible subject to research somehow. So that's why I embarked on it. <laughs> I mean, it is possible, but the impossible... I think is linked to not being able to fully find answers to questions when you research love. I guess because it's been like for five years that I've been having this Tumblr, Technologies of Love, and I update it with like mixed regularity. So sometimes I don't post anything for months. Other times I have like a surge of excitement about it again. I think I started theoretically because of my personal situation of somehow wanting to question the necessity for romanticism, for the couple format, for sentimentalism, for nostalgia, all these sort of corny things that I also find a bit embarrassing, but that I felt like I wanted to delve into. And at the same time, also, I link it very much to my choreographic practice, this interest in love. Again, it's a very intuitive linkage. When I started, I was convinced there was a very strong improvisational link. Both love is very much a practice of improvisation based on the knowledge we accumulate. So just like in dance or like in performance, not everybody uses improvisation in performance, but there is a moment in which you try out things within the unknown with your own body and with the bodies of other people in order to understand. So this is important because it doesn't mean that you set out to find an answer that you presuppose, but it means that you set out to do something and maybe from there to draw possible questions and answers. Or this is maybe more like the school of improvised practices I've been busy with, both in movement and now more in language. Then there's like the whole theoretical aspect. So like what happens in your life when you cannot quite grasp what's happening to you in your mind and heart? You go to theory, you start listening to those fabulous lectures by Michael Hart in which he explains what a potential love ethic could be for a society in which he uh, claims that love could be potentially a social force in which he claims that maybe it's not enough to just speak of solidarity or just speak of empathy but love is this um, activating force. As a human who is a migrant and who spends most of her life in not her native language and who is constantly in touch with different kinds of people from different contexts and different lineages and different histories, I guess I what I notice a lot in my life is all those smaller and bigger differences that there are between us. I think today I can say that this thing that um, drew me so much to love and to researching love and thinking about love and thinking of lovely forms of collaboration is precisely this thing of difference. The more 
accepted stereotypical way of thinking about love is that love brings out uh, similarity. You know, people I read, one of them being, of course, Michael Hart, as I already said. I love how we can approach the non-obvious in love, how we can approach it from singularity and from somehow embracing difference. Now, this is, of course, theoretically very nice. And then on a practical level, I wonder why is it precisely love and not, for example, something else, something more rational? We tend to maybe degrade love a little bit that it's eros or it's a desire. So that basically it's unstable, transient. I just feel that love is not merging in unity, even though sometimes, especially when you have a very passionate encounter with someone, physically or emotionally, you tend to feel, oh my God, I am so close to this. This intimacy is so close and can be so tender. I find it fascinating, the hormonal aspect of closeness or of intimacy, where intimacy, let's also say it, is not just great and sweet and lovely. Like intimacy also is a strong alienating force. Sometimes you can be too close to someone. Sometimes you can be in danger because of that. You're not always touched the way you want to be touched. I'm just fascinated how we can still want to create commitment to things and people and how we want to stay in situations acknowledging all the differences. One thing is, of course, to theorize about it. Another thing is like when I am now, for example, dating a person, and then I'm constantly in situations in which, whether I want it or not, I notice their behavior, or I notice what it does to me. And not that I overanalyze everything, no, but I do notice, like I catch myself thinking, this is so different to how I would think it or do it. It's so not a naturalized way of experiencing love. Maybe I'm simplifying, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. There is this tendency to really want to be one. I am a very practical person. I, I'm always interested in modes and technologies of doing things. It's a mode and a way of approaching maybe a situation or a problem. So when I say technologies of love, I might mean also whatever we consider a technology today, the development of technology, etc. But I mean more, how is it a set of prescriptions on how to act, behave and feel and think? It is a research. So some of it is practical and some of it also goes into performance making or talking about it, right? It's also me basically wondering about how to be with people. And when I say be with people, I don't just mean in romantic relationships. I mean how to be with my mother. That's a very specific, uh, challenging kind of love. How to be with my nieces, how to be with my friends. There is this strong like overlap between friendship and love and also in my years of being couple free <laughs> I have learned that there are really interesting and exciting ways of setting structures for friendship. Some friendships don't need it, like yours and mine, but some friendships need a level of theatralization, no, framing, role making for certain tenderness and certain trust to be able to flourish. So for example, if I as a 35-year-old person who is actually able to conceive children, decided that I never want to be a mother, what can I do to still embrace this tendency that I might somehow feel or this need for caretaking? So what can I do? I can mother projects in the neoliberal artistic sphere. I can also set up a structure to a mother slash caretake of a human who decides to be my child. And that's a relationship I have with one of my friends. I'm the caretaker, he's a child. But of course, the whole magic of it is that we oftentimes switch verse to verse relationship, that we both fulfill those roles. This relationship is a friendship that I guess I needed to set within those theatrical performative boundaries for me to embrace somehow the fact that I am dealing with difficulty when it comes to the love to my mother. It doesn't mean that I don't love my mother. It means I'm trying to understand what this relationship is now. Plus, I will probably never be a biological mother, which is perfectly fine. It's not a drama, but I am just finding ways within the performative tools also, choreographic tools, we could say, of setting boundaries for relationships, because boundaries are important. The cliche romantic love is supposed to be a remedy for everything. We know, of course, it's bullshit, but still, it's so mainstream, it needs to be reminded. 
and then the subject of boundaries, practicalities, what is good for whom, what is bad for whom, like this never comes up. Because I work a lot with power structures in the work I make, not necessarily explicitly, but poetically, and those economies of care and economies of power. This is super interesting for me in love. And when I say love, like I insist, I mean following Michael Hart, love as a sort of social ethic based both on, say, caritas, charity, like giving it out, offering it, and also eros, desire. You know, he says explicitly, like, can desire be productive of community? And then I wonder, because I do feel like I function within specific, shifting, floating community where I live and where I go to work. I mean, I just choose to also work like this. I want to work with people who are important to me. I don't always have to. I also go and do jobs. Power and hierarchy, because I'm not saying that we should totally let go of any notion of hierarchy. Horizontality in collaboration or in coexistence is a certain idea which we might, might not be working towards, but I feel um, like there is and there should be a strong level of maintaining individual agency and singularity within even hierarchical structures. The thing is that they need to be understood and accepted by everyone. And then it works. And then we can avoid the passive aggressive. I even prefer the openly aggressive to the passive aggressive. I'm totally for confrontation because I feel like we tend to demonize confrontation as violence. And I feel we can still confront within certain realms of nonviolent communication. And I don't like how demonized it is. But I'm also super interested in its failing aspect or in its tiny, irritating, annoying aspects. All these uh, ugly feelings. This is a term by a theoretician whose name I don't remember. All these things like jealousy, envy, irritability. On one hand, I tend to think that love can be a powerful tool towards social change and basically fighting social inequalities. You know, as romantic and idealistic as this sounds, like I do believe in it, it's a creative force. But at the same time, there's those little annoying situations in which you feel discomfort, either an uncomfortable situation in friendship, because we work a lot with our friends, the two are super interconnected. And it's just hard to theorize about this because like it affects you. Like you were saying, do I need to perceive a person who has a similar research to mine in arts as an enemy? Why not just assume that it's possible to make work or to coexist outside of competition or being competitive? In the art community, we sometimes laugh it's a bit like high school. There is a lot of comparison and there is a lot of jealousy, envy. It's super embarrassing. But it's not like it's there because we are all playing in the same game. Yeah, exactly. How do you maintain this fabulous, lovely feminist utopia when in fact there's so much like hidden shit going on? How can I embrace every time what I'm thinking, constantly somehow trace my motivation? But then of course I have to have the will to be in solidarity and sort of to be a friend, not to have toxic damaging behaviors to others. But this is a choice. What prevails somehow is competition and is narcissism. This is tricky, of course, like I'm speaking from a rather idealistic position of I would like the world not to be the way it is. The destructive factors of the work, the labor and I say love. On one hand, I'm very interested in love as in its potential to be an ethical force, like something that would actually lead to social change. This is following my reading. At the same time, I'm very interested in the whole problematic around care, which is also a very used and abused term lately. And I am probably on the intersection of dance choreography and love and womanhood, we could add to this, actually, because of all the practices of emotional labor, of actually physical care that women have been for ages assigned to do. This whole research about love, both practical and theoretical, have sort of turned in the last year or so towards thinking about embracing weakness and embracing somehow inability. I have been busy lately thinking about such things as chronic pain, invisible physical disorders, 
if you do a bit of reading or if you yourself suffer from any of the symptoms, I can speak about it in a second, or if you have friends who do, which all of us do, if you start speaking about people about how they feel physically, be surprised to see how many of your friends have some sort of a either a temporary or a chronic condition of some sort how hugely psychosomatic they are and how is this linked to love well it's linked to love because it has to do with how i perceive my own body which is aching and which is sick and how dependent i am or i become on other people well the couple love there's this assumption that there's a commitment towards taking care you know in sickness and in health right and then in queer community so for example for me and my friends who will maybe not necessarily have children, or if they do have children, how do we take care of other people's children who are not our children? This whole thing of how do you think future of caretaking and mothering and relationship within humanity that we try to practice without having straightforward answers to. Part of this interest in, well, I don't want to say in the disease, because what I'm specifically interested in is certain fatigue and well disability i'm going to use this word linked to autoimmune diseases diseases in which your own immune system starts to attack your tissues and your cells so there's this autoaggressive mechanism there there's lots of them there's hundreds of those diseases and they're actually very spread they're much more uh, visible in women than in men and then there's also this other field of what i call well let's say weird diseases like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome or endometriosis so again, like a group of diseases or medical disorders that are linked mostly to women or non-males. There's such an emphasis in neoliberalism put on an active, healthy body that everything that is not that is immediately marginalized, becomes immediately the other. If we have gender, a sexual practice, a religion, race, the ability, the ableism is another uh, important category. It has to do with weakness, like my interest in the fatigue, in the not being able to carry on. Um, of course, it's linked to the fact that I am observing how I and my body and my mind are aging. Of course, I'm still in a great shape, but I'm somehow interested in this lifelong process of actually gaining and losing certain physical and mental capacities. And these particular diseases are considered to be psychosomatic. And this term psychosomatic only comes like from the 19th century. The mainstream Western medicine has only made this connection like not a long time ago. It's quite striking because then, of course, without also idealizing, romanticizing the East too much, but let's say the Chinese medicine or certain Indian systems and stuff, they have been aware of this relation between your body, your mind, the energies that combine the two like for a very long time. Hence, now we all go to yoga and we all have our Chinese doctor, whatever. The medical authority, it's a system of power. For example, the women that I've spoken to who suffer from endometriosis, they would oftentimes make this point. I'm constantly told that I either need to get an operation or there's no other cure for me. And then, of course, they tend to make this comment that we get super defensive, it's fine. If this was a male disease, there would be lots of research. I think specifically with endometriosis, there is a lack of research and a sense of not being taken care of by the patients. Endometriosis specifically is a slightly different subject than, say, chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, where this is also interesting in terms of the subject of the woman, because, say, multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease, was first described by this famous physicist who also described hysteria, by Charcot, around the same period. I'm chucking lots of different diseases into one sack, so to speak. But from like my reading and talking to people and my own experiences, it's interesting, you know, how in the 21st century you have like bodily states and bodily disorders, let's call it, because like if you constantly have pain, this is not necessarily what we would call a normative body. A body in constant pain, in chronic pain. Like what does this word chronic even mean? It's fascinating to understand how the definition of disease or illness has changed. Illness is something that either gets cured or that you die from. But with chronic diseases, what happens is that oftentimes they have a collection of unstable, unsteady, vague symptoms which come and go. You know, you get flare-ups, you get remissions. It's very somehow mysterious how this works. It's very difficult for, say, Western medicine to harness it. Hence, these patients, who oftentimes are women, are somehow disbelieved and left to their own devices. 
this book Tender Points, which has a whole account of the writer's experience with having been raped and then developing fibromyalgia. She's very rational about it again. It's writing, very rational slash emotional. It's an incredible account of how you develop physical conditions out of your psychological, emotional life and vice versa. You do have emotional, psychological reactions to a body that doesn't act according to what you used to know about your body. And this, of course, changes exactly how this body behaves in a social context, uh, what this body can and cannot do. I don't mean to fetishize this too much. as I think conceptually it's also super interesting to have this thing of where does suffering begin, where does it end? What I find super interesting is also the relationality uh, inscribed in it. So how do we take care of this? Who takes care of this? Who has patience for this? We also function, like you always say, like in a very project-oriented manner. We also continuously have to be healthy. We have to be healthy for our projects. And in order to survive a year, we have to have many projects. The whole problem of understanding what rest is, because compulsive workers. And sure, oftentimes we like our work and stuff, but still, like, how do you take care of your physical health and hence emotional There's a sense that uh, we are so overwhelmed with so much stimuli. Never before have we had so much stimuli, right? From the technology, social media, everything, that you somehow cannot metabolize more. I, as a person who comes like from choreography or from, let's say, physical labor, <laughs> oftentimes I talk to people who also come from this field and like, you know, how to take care of ourselves. This whole thing, uh, again, already in the mainstream of self-care, which I find also very problematic because one thing is to practice self-care, especially for minorities, uh, self-care is crucial because you go through so much more stress and tension in your daily life, be it because of the defense mechanisms that you have to develop or the fear that you go through in your daily life, that self-care is crucial. And in that sense, it is an anti-systemic practice, as is resting as is not doing, for example, for your system to sort of recharge and be able to be alive and healthy and feeling good, you know, because it's also about feeling good. At the same time, the sort of the mainstream imperative of doing your meditations and yogas and eating your gluten-free food, and this is just a clear imperative to simply follow the rules in a way that is completely non-reflective. The thing that I find super fascinating about this autoimmune disease, autoimmune dis mechanism in the human's body, this whole problem of chronicity, of symptoms or pain, is that it really shifts our thinking about time and temporality. This is probably a bit exaggerated, but if you think about it, potentially could be a form of passive protest of certain groups or minorities against, let's say, patriarchy. This is, of course, like a poetic interpretation. It's an opinion. Women worry a lot, or people socialized as women generally worry a lot. This is again another thing that I find super interesting, because on one hand, I don't want to um, not allow it. On the other hand, so much energy goes into that for no reason. And of course, I understand that it's because we are brought up to have more fear than men. I mean, this is at least my experience. Like if I'm constantly reminded as a teenager that, oh, maybe it's better if you don't walk on the street when it's dark. Maybe it's better if you don't speak to strangers. All of a sudden, like I'm limited in my full expression <laughs> out of fear. Of course, it's being rational because things happen to girls and women. Of course, later you worry more. You allow yourself more. You let yourself go less. I feel like uh, dance, physical practice, intellectual practice as well, but like dance and physical practice somehow really maybe has helped me a bit to shift my understanding of what my body is and could be. There's a certain maybe strength, like even physical muscular strength linked to it, which also affects how you think, affects your mind in a way. But of course, not everybody has this experience. So then like, how do you practice this womanhood, which is not so restrained and constantly worried? Don't get me wrong. We need to be also reasonable and responsible. Of course, there's a level of care which is linked to well not worry but linked to somehow being present for others but sometimes the worrying is such a strong habit that it really kills the whole joy it infantilizes relationships also i feel don't you feel
one has to be a bit careful with caring and care because it's good to distinguish when am I actually caring and by this I mean I'm trying to be with the person either directly or on a distance in person or in distance or when am I so busy performing that I'm a good caretaker to myself that I somehow jerk off on my own necessity to be a good and tender human and caring human. This is a bit brutal what I'm saying, but you know how like when you sometimes are with a friend who is having going through a very hard moment, difficult moment, and you feel obliged to find a solution for them by giving them 25 different pieces of advice. And what this friend actually maybe needs is not an advice, but just for you to be there for an hour with them. I try to observe myself, how much do I speak or how much do I listen when I'm with someone who actually needs attention at a given moment? Because maybe it's not about me giving them all the tools that I think I have for them, but maybe it's about them speaking it out or maybe it's about silence. These things are more intense and somehow more striking with really crisis situations like death. These like taboo situations in which like we don't know how do you speak to a friend whose dear friend or ex-partner just passed away and who's crying? How do you caretake for this? Especially people socialized as women have very strong habit of feeling like we need to over-empathize and like we need to find solutions. And generally the society has a very big problem with moments of sorrow and uh, cannot take a moment in which like everything is not fine. This is also such an anglophone thing, you know, that whenever you ask how you're doing, you need to feel fine. Not just anglophone, it's actually very international at this point. Like, you know, when I was growing up in Poland, there wasn't even this question, how are you? And now there is, because it's a way of sustaining pleasant sensation of that everything is fine, because of course you're never gonna come out with your internal extended depression. Maybe you've been medicalized for, for the past year when somebody asks you how you are doing. How much care and how much worry is good and how much of it is just my habit. And I can also maybe try and change my habit. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch. Or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hdk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hdk at fhnw.ch. Instituto Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found at www.museumsush.ch. That's museumsush.ch. Promise No Promises is produced by the Art Institute HGK FHNW in Basel and Instituto Sush Art Stations Foundation Switzerland. Recording and Sound Design, Sonja Fernandez-Pan. Editing, Elena Cesar. Research Assistant, Alice Wilke. We also want to thank the Stiftung für Erforschung der Frauenarbeit for their support.